lectures and history lovers, we want to hear from you. Have you ever wondered how we choose the lectures we feature or how many schools we reach out to? Or maybe you have a question about how we choose which historical periods to cover. We want to answer all of your questions in a special episode of the Lectures in History podcast coming out this fall. You can call or email your questions. Leave us a voicemail at 202-626-4600 with your name and question related to lectures in history. Or email us at podcasts at c-span.org. That's podcasts with an S at c-span.org. As our top students, write this number down, 202-626-4600, and leave your questions, your comments about the Lectures in History podcast by August 21st. New classes resume this fall. Thanks for making Lectures in History C-SPAN's number one podcast. During this week's Lecture in History, you will learn how refugees served an important symbolic function during the Cold War. They demonstrated their desire for democracy over totalitarianism and their desire for capitalism over communism. Some refugees went through extraordinary lengths like building underground tunnels, jumping over fences and walls, and in some cases even built hot air balloons to fly them across international borders. Hi, I'm Juan Zapata, a production assistant here at C-SPAN Radio, and this week, a lecture from Cornell University history professor Maria Cristina Garcia. She provides more insight on the United States refugee policy since World War II and speaks about qualifications to be a refugee and how those have changed as well as legislation governing quotas and procedures. Class starts right after this. Hundreds of thousands of people are fleeing to Europe at this very moment. Can anyone tell me from what countries they are fleeing? Leighton. Okay, Syria. Any other countries? Tess. I'm sorry? Kosovo. Okay, Sarah. Russia. Any other countries? Stephen. Eritrea. Eritrea. That's correct. Patricio. That's correct. Thank you. So they are traveling very long distances to find refuge in Europe. And this map gives you an idea of the routes and the distances that they are traveling in order to reach safety. Some are traveling alone. Others are traveling as part of family units. Some are traveling in search of economic opportunity. Others are literally fleeing for their lives to escape war, devastation, rape, and forced conscription into armies. The vast majority of the refugees are Syrian. Can anyone tell me why the Syrians are fleeing? Okay, thank you. Albert. Civil war, absolutely. Would anyone else like to uh, talk? Okay, thank you. Meredith? Absolutely correct. All of you. Thank you. Um, so this country has been locked in a bloody civil war for the past four years that has internally displaced one-third of its population. That's 7 million out of 21 million people. Some 4 million people have been forced to cross international borders 
mostly to neighboring countries like Jordan and Lebanon. They are fleeing enormous devastation. Last month, the Obama administration announced that it would increase the annual refugee quota over the next two years to assist with this humanitarian crisis. The annual quota, which has been set at 70,000 to 80,000 for over a decade now, will increase to 100,000 by the end of fiscal year 2017, presumably to accommodate a greater share of Syrian refugees. Within our immigration bureaucracy, there are several tracks for admission. And over the course of this semester, we've discussed some of those tracks of admission. Today, we are going to discuss two additional tracks, the refugee and asylum tracks. As you know from your class readings, Americans have used the word refugee throughout the 19th and 20th centuries to describe a wide range of of migration experiences. During the mid-19th century, for example, Americans referred to the Germans fleeing the 1848 revolution in Europe as refugees. In 1865, as part of the post-Civil War Reconstruction, the federal government established an agency known as the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, more popularly known as the Freedmen's Bureau, to assist the newly freed slaves. And during the Mexican Revolution of 1910 to 1920, an estimated one million people fled Mexico and settled in the southwestern United States. American journalists and politicians commonly referred to these people as refugees. But there are many other historical examples that we could point to. Uh, We have used the term refugee over and over again throughout American immigration history. However, today, refugee has a very precise legal meaning. And that legal meaning has developed over the past 60 years, as we will see in today's class. We don't see a distinct refugee policy until the end of World War II. Two congressional acts are generally considered the origins of American refugee policy, the 1948 Displaced Persons Act and the 1953 Refugee Relief Act. Under these two programs, the federal government allowed roughly 600,000 Europeans to immigrate to the United States over and beyond the established immigration quotas because it was deemed in the national interest. Can anyone tell me why the Truman and the Eisenhower administration would have deemed it in the national interest to accommodate European refugees and displaced persons? Anyone want to venture a guess? Okay, Sarah. Right. So we are already locked in a cold war with the Soviet Union. We're battling for the hearts and minds of the developing world. Um, this is a way of signaling to, um, uh, to the rest of the world our humanitarian commitment. Any other reasons why Truman and Eisenhower test? Absolutely. They wanted European stability. They wanted to assist in, in Europe's post-war economic recovery. Any other reasons that you can think of? Well, these are all very good answers. At the end of the war, there were an estimated 10 million people left homeless, and in some cases stateless, just in Europe alone. Truman wanted to accommodate a greater share of the displaced persons in order to assist Europe's post-war recovery, as Tess pointed out. 
financial aid to the war-torn nations was not enough, he said. The United States had a moral obligation to accept a number of the displaced persons in Europe. And yet Congress resisted. Even after Americans became more fully aware of the horrors of the Nazi death camps, Congress resisted. Can anyone venture a guess or tell me why Congress would have been so resistant at this time to accommodating displaced persons and refugees? Anyone want want to venture a guess? Well, bear in mind that at this moment in time, the national origins quotas are still in place. And so admitting people outside of those national origins quotas was a highly controversial idea. It was resisted on Capitol Hill. And when the Displaced Persons Act finally passed, it passed three years after the war had ended. Even though President Truman had advocated on behalf of the displaced persons, he was tempted to veto this particular bill that came out of Congress because he felt that it was, quote, wholly inconsistent with American sense of justice, end quote. But in the end, he signed the legislation because he wanted to be able to assist some um, segments of the displaced population, even though it was not the, the bill that he was looking for. So why did he consider this to be inconsistent, wholly inconsistent with American sense of justice? Because the, war, the, the bill that came out of Congress put so many restrictions on who could be sponsored. You had to be located in Austria and Germany, for example, and you had to have been living there by 1945. And this excluded uh, most of the Jewish refugee population. The law was amended two years later in, 19, in 1950. But by, by August of 1952, of the 415,000 Europeans that were brought in as displaced persons, only 80,000 of them were Jewish refugees. The majority of those who were granted visas to come to the United States were ethnic Germans. President Eisenhower also believed that much more had to be done to assist the countries of Western Europe, countries that were still economically uh, recovering from the war and now facing the additional burden of thousands of refugees that were fleeing the Eastern Bloc, fleeing the newly emerging communist countries of, of the Eastern Bloc and moving into Western Europe. This time, Congress responded with the Refugee Relief Act of 1953. And this act granted 214,000 visas over the next two years to, quote, refugees, expellees, and escapees. The law defined these terms in very particular ways. Expellees and escapees were defined as those who fled communist countries, while refugees were defined as those in danger of persecution anywhere in the world. However, because the vast majority of those who were admitted to the United States under the Refugee Relief Act were fleeing communist countries, the term refugee became synonymous with those who were fleeing communism, at least in this country. Refugee policy became a tool of Cold War foreign policy. It was a a way of assisting those who were fleeing communism. But because the people who were fleeing communism um, 
uh, well, let's just say there was a great deal of suspicion in the United States among Americans about whether these individuals were truly uh, democracy-loving, freedom-loving individuals. Um, So those who came from communist countries tended to be heavily screened because of American fears of sponsoring communist spies and saboteurs who would infiltrate the United States and do us harm, cause harm to the United States. Now, as the Cold War developed, the United States was forced to deal with a number of humanitarian crises, and these um, responses helped to further develop our refugee policy. In 1956, for example, socialist revolutionaries in Hungary overthrew their pro-Soviet communist government, and this prompted a violent crackdown on the part of the Soviet Union. Within days of the Soviet crackdown, tens of thousands of Hungarian refugees had fled into neighboring Austria and Yugoslavia. Some 200,000 Hungarian refugees eventually took refuge in Austria alone. And to accommodate these Hungarian refugees, the Eisenhower administration used a little-known codicil in the 1952 McCarran-Walter Act known as the Parole Authority, which allowed the Attorney General to parole people into the United States without a visa and outside of immigration quotas if it was deemed in the national interest. The immigrant parolees could stay in the United States, but they could not become permanent residents or citizens unless Congress passed legislation that helped them normalize their status. Eisenhower used this parole authority to admit some 32,000 Hungarian refugees into the United States, uh, just from Austria. And an additional 6,000 refugees were brought in under a variety of, of other visas. But because Americans were concerned with sponsoring communist spies and saboteurs, the U.S. refugees were brought to Camp Kilmer, an old army base in New Jersey, where they were screened, interviewed, housed temporarily before they were released to their assigned American sponsor families. And on this uh, photograph that you see here on the screen, we see Vice President Richard Nixon meeting with Hungarian refugee children around Christmas time. The next humanitarian crisis came in Cuba. In 1959, Fidel Castro and his July 26th movement overthrew the government of Fulgencio Batista. And between 1959 and 1973, roughly half a million Cubans were admitted to the United States, the majority of them through the so-called freedom flights of the mid to late 1960s. In fact, today, this very day, December 1st, marks the 50th anniversary of the, very fir- of the first freedom flight from Havana to Miami International Airport. The Kennedy administration created the Cuban Refugee Program to screen the refugees, to find sponsors for them, and to help them retool for life in the United States. By the time the Cuban Refugee Program was phased out in the mid-1970s, the federal government had invested some $900 million into Cuban refugee relief. Now, as I mentioned earlier, those paroled into the United States could not become permanent residents or citizens unless Congress passed enabling legislation, legislation that allowed them to normalize their status. And this is what Congress did. 
Congress passed the Hungarian Relief Act of 1958 and the 1966 Cuban Adjustment Act, which allowed Hungarians and Cubans to become permanent residents of the United States after living just two years in the United States. So we begin to see the origins of a distinct refugee policy taking place in the 1950s and 1960s. Now, members of Congress became increasingly concerned that the White House was using the parole authority much too much as a backdoor to bring in people into the United States outside of the established immigration quotas. So consequently, when Congress passed the Hart-Seller Act, of 1965, which we discussed a couple of weeks ago, they inserted a quota of 10,000 refugees per year. And once again, refugee was defined as someone who fled a communist, communist-dominated, or communist-occupied country. So we see that further association of the word refugee with someone who is fleeing communism. This association of refugee with anti-communism continued through the 1970s. Those admitted under the Hart Seller refugee quota, almost all of them came from communist countries. And the executive branch continued to parole anti-communists outside of immigration quotas. And after the fall of Saigon in 1975, some 130,000 refugees were admitted from Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. And Congress passed the Indochina Migration and Refugee Assistance Act to provide resettlement assistance to those 130,000 refugees. Now, the decision to admit refugees was always contested. Throughout the 1950s, the 1960s, and the 1970s, public opinion polls showed that Americans were generally sympathetic to those who were fleeing communism. But they didn't necessarily want them to come here. They didn't want them to come to the United States. They wanted them to go someplace else. Back in 1956, for example, the Eisenhower administration had to enlist the assistance of public relations firms from Madison Avenue to help them sell the idea of Hungarian refugees to a reluctant American population. And these public relations firms worked with specific journalists who published story after story in news magazines like Time, Newsweek, and Life, portraying the Hungarians as hardworking, freedom-loving people. The photograph that I showed earlier of Vice President Richard Nixon meeting with the Hungarian refugee children was part of that PR campaign to sell the idea of Hungarian refugees to a reluctant American population. But many Americans were still not convinced. And 20 years later, Americans were even more resistant to accommodating Southeast Asians who they viewed as too culturally different to uh, be properly assimilated to the United States. The pain of the Vietnam War also probably had a great deal to do with that, with that reluctance to sponsor Southeast Asian uh, refugees. Despite the news of squalid refugee camps in Thailand, and despite the news that hundreds of people were dying at sea to reach safety somewhere in the world, uh, less than one public opinion polls tell us that less than one-third of Americans were in favor of sponsoring Vietnamese or other Southeast Asian refugees on American soil. But despite this public opposition, the White House always took the lead on refugee policy. They favored refugee admissions for humanitarian reasons, but also as a tool of 
uh, Cold War foreign policy. Refugees served an important symbolic function during the Cold War. They demonstrated the desirability of democracy over totalitarianism, and they demonstrated the desirability of capitalism over communism. Refugees went to great lengths to escape a communist country, as you see here on the photo. Um, These photos are are of people from East Berlin trying to reach uh, uh, West Berlin. uh, So as you see in these photos, um, some refugees went to extraordinary lengths. They They built underground tunnels. They jumped over fences and walls. In some cases, they built hot air balloons to fly them across uh, international borders. They, they demonstrated, they symbolized the hunger on behalf of, 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 of humans to, to, to live in free societies, or so the argument went. Refugees were also the highly skilled of their societies, or in many cases, they were the highly skilled of their societies. And in some cases, they brought important intelligence that informed our military policies overseas. Refugee scientists like Albert Einstein, excuse me. Okay, thank you. So refugee scientists like Albert Einstein and Enrico Fermi played a key role in the development of nuclear physics in this country. And the United States also went to great lengths to bring in people that they considered the brightest into the United States. And as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, the Secretary of State even expunged the Nazi records of people like Werner von Braun and some of his fellow Nazi scientists so that they could work in U.S. intelligence. And Werner uh, von Braun and his, uh, fellows, uh, his team of scientists played a key role in the development of the U.S. space program. But refugees also informed our political life. Um, think of Henry Kissinger. Madeleine Albright, the German political theorist Hannah Arendt. They have played a key role, but there are others. They've played a key role in shaping our political life. They've shaped our cultural life. Think of the actress Marlina Dietrich, the Hungarian composer Bela Bartok, uh, the Austrian composer Arnold Schoenberg, and the Russian-French painter Marc Chagall. But there are many, many other refugees that we could highlight. Refugees have always played an important role in the political, economic, and cultural life of our nation. But public opinion polls tell us that Americans were very concerned about accommodating refugees, no matter how noble the cause, no matter how noble the individual. In 1980... Congress passed the Refugee Act in response to what they perceived to be the continuing misuse of the parole authority on the part of the executive branch in service of Cold War foreign policy. And the 1980 Refugee Act tried to free the definition of refugee from its anti-communist connotations. And instead, they adopted the UN definition of refugee. Can anyone tell me the five protected categories in the UN and the US definition of refugee? Okay, Vivian. Um, race, religion, nationality, um, political opinion, and the kind of social. Uh, correct. So a refugee must prove a well founded fear of persecution, as Vivian noted, based on race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. 
The Refugee Act also established a numerical quota. They were tired of the executive branch bringing in an indefinite number of refugees outside of immigration quotas, and they put a strict numerical limit on those refugees who could be brought into the United States. How is the refugee quota determined? Can anyone tell me? Anyone want to venture a guess? Okay, well, since 1980, the White House, in consultation with Congress, establishes an annual refugee quota and carves up that quota according to that year's national priorities. So during the first year, the quota was set at 50,000. It was eventually increased to 120,000. But since 9-11, the annual refugee quota has hovered at 70 to 80,000 per year. But as you see on this slide, we have never, ever come close to meeting the quota. The closest we came was 2013, which unfortunately has been cut off at the bottom of the slide. That year in 2013, we came within 100 uh, slots of meeting the annual refugee quota of of uh, 70,000. But as you see on the slide, uh, here on the first column, you see the annual ceiling and then the actual number of refugees who were admitted during that fiscal year. And we've never come close to meeting the annual refugee quota. Despite attempts to bring the definition of refugee in line with international norms, in practice, anti-communism continued to be the ideological lens through which we determined who a refugee is, who would be prioritized for admission to the United States. The vast majority of our refugees have come from just three countries, the Soviet Union, Cuba, and Vietnam. Now, the end of the Cold War presented numerous humanitarian challenges for the United States. Millions of people were displaced from their homes and forced to cross international borders as nations disappeared, reconstituted themselves, and politically realigned. We've seen war, civil unrest, genocide, natural disaster in far too many countries. By the end of the 1990s, the first decade after the, uh, the, I guess you could say the first decade of the post-Cold War period, by the end of the 1990s, there were 14 million refugees worldwide, the majority of them women and children. In the post-Cold War period, foreign policy interests continue to influence who comes into the United States. But what we're seeing also in the post-Cold War period is the growing importance of domestic advocacy groups. They're playing a much more proactive role in shaping the, uh, the contours of refugee policy, who is admitted to the United States. Those groups that have powerful advocates representing their interests before Congress are much more successful in prying open the door to the United States. Our system is highly responsive to advocacy. So let me give you a few examples. In 1990, the decision to give half of the refugee quota to Soviet Jews had a great deal to do with domestic pressure, with domestic advocacy. During the administration of Ronald Reagan, the White House had railed at the Soviet leadership to allow the Jewish refuseniks to leave the Soviet Union. They even made future trade with the United States contingent on improvements in Soviet emigration policy. 
Now, the term refusenik was, was highly used during this period in the United States and Europe to refer to Jews who had been consistently denied the right to emigrate by the Soviet Union. But when Mikhail Gorbachev came to power and instituted his policies of greater openness, known as perestroika and glasnost, Jews were finally allowed to emigrate in greater and greater numbers. However, as Soviet policy became more liberalized, their chances for coming to the United States became more restricted because the Immigration and Naturalization Service, the INS, now argued that the Jews could no longer claim persecution because the Soviet Union was easing up on its restrictions of the Jewish population. So the reasons why they wanted to emigrate were slowly starting to evaporate. And it was American Jewish groups uh, who passionately advocated on behalf of the Soviet refuseniks. And it was these groups that reminded the Bush and the Clinton administrations of their obligation to accept those who had once been at the center of foreign policy negotiations. And it was this passionate advocacy on the part of American Jewish groups that facilitated the entrance of over 358,000 former Soviets, most of them Jews, from 1990 to 1998. But here are some other examples. Following the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre, Congress worked hard to pass legislation to allow Chinese students studying in the United States to remain here. Many Chinese students were afraid to return home because they had been vocal supporters of the student protesters at Tiananmen. And now they were afraid to go home and and perhaps face retaliation on the part of the government. President George Herbert Walker Bush objected to these congressional initiatives in large part because he feared that it might strain diplomatic relations with Beijing. But in the end, his administration bowed to domestic and congressional pressure, and the Emergency Chinese Immigration Relief Act allowed some 80,000 Chinese students and faculty to remain in the United States and become uh, permanent residents and citizens. Here's another example of the importance of advocacy. During the 1990s, many undocumented Cuban boat people found asylum in the United States in large part because of the advocacy of the very vocal and politically influential Cuban-American community in South Florida. Haitian boat people, by comparison, were more likely to be called economic migrants despite the fact that they were fleeing equally or more repressive conditions. Haitians were much more likely to be detained and deported than were the Cubans. And this did not change until the Congressional Black Caucus took up their cause and forged a more humane response from Congress. And then one final example of the importance of advocacy. The Nicaraguan Adjustment and Central American Relief Act of 1997. This act allowed hundreds of thousands of Central Americans um, to remain in the United States. And this legislation was the, res- was the culmination of almost two decades of intensive advocacy on the part of an unlikely coalition of allies of the political left and the political right. But there are many other examples that I could highlight here about the importance of advocacy. And as many of you know, I have a new book that's coming out in the spring, and, and in that book I discuss many, of, many other cases of the importance of advocacy. 
So advocacy has been key in the post-Cold War period. Advocacy has been very important in shaping the contours of our refugee and asylum policy. But here are uh, three other factors that have affected policy in the post-Cold War era. The first is the growing number of asylum seekers. So who can tell me the difference between a refugee and an asylee or an asylum seeker? Kristen. Um, So an asylum seeker is essentially a refugee that's already made it to their final destination country and is asking um, essentially to receive sanctuary there, whereas a refugee is asking from a different country if it's not their own. Absolutely correct. Uh, Much has to do with where you're asking for protection. A refugee is identified abroad for resettlement in the United States. So a refugee might come under the attention of, say, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, who then contacts the United States or another third country and asks if that person can be resettled in the United States. And then the person is subjected to intensive screening before they are allowed to immigrate to the U.S. But an asylum seeker is essentially a refugee, as as Kristen pointed out. But the asylum seeker asks for protection on U.S. soil. They might do so at a port of entry like JFK or LAX airports. They might do so at the U.S.-Canada border or the U.S.-Mexico border. Or they might come in as a student or as a tourist. And while they are here in the U.S., they might ask for asylum. So it has to do with location. The difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker has to do with location, where you ask for protection from the United States. Now, during the 1990s alone... Half a million people requested asylum, and the numbers have continued to grow since then. Our asylum system is overburdened, and immigration judges must hear an extraordinary number of cases each day just to move through the backlog. The majority of asylum seekers do not receive asylum in the United States. Asylum seekers are not guaranteed legal representation. There is no due process as we understand it. Um, in our justice system. And legal representation makes all the difference. In fiscal year 2010, for example, only 11% of those asylum seekers who did not have legal representation were, were successful in receiving asylum from the U.S. Having legal representation makes all the difference, but most uh, asylum seekers do not have legal representation. They either cannot afford it or they cannot receive pro bono representation because the system is just stretched too thin. So that's the first factor um, uh, uh, in the post-Cold War period, uh, something that makes makes the post-Cold War period different, the growing number of asylum seekers. Terrorism on U.S. soil is a second factor that has affected the development of refugee and asylum policy in the post-Cold War period. As a result of terrorism on U.S. soil, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, and then, of course, 9-11, as a result of that, uh, our immigration bureaucracy was completely revamped. And today's terrorists, I mean, excuse me, today's refugees are the most vetted in U.S. history to prevent would-be terrorists from entering the United States and causing us harm. The State Department now tells us that refugees can expect Um, 18 to 24 months of vetting, of screening, um, before they are um, uh, moved through the system and and considered for admission to the United States. But being placed on a waiting list, even if you are successfully vetted and and, and you are asked to wait, that does not guarantee that you will be admitted to the United States. There is no waiting list per se. 
even Iraqi and Afghan translators and other service personnel who have already been vetted to work with U.S. armed forces in the Middle East, even they are not guaranteed admission to the United States. The asylum system has also been revamped in order to the terrorist attacks of the 1990s and and 9-11. Three years after the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, Congress passed the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act. Um, And this law had two provisions that affected asylum seekers in particular, expedited removal and automatic detention. The immigration officer at a port of entry today now has enormous authority to decide on the spot if an asylum seeker has a credible fear of persecution that should be further evaluated by an asylum officer or an immigration judge. But if the officer does not consider the person to have a credible fear of persecution, he or she can order that person removed immediately from the United States. And that process is known as expedited removal. Asylum seekers are now also generally held in detention until their asylum hearing. If you have friends or relatives in the United States, you might be released to them if they are willing to assume responsibility for your care. It can be a year or more before an asylum seeker is given authorization to work. And in the meantime, you must rely on those friends and relatives for your livelihood. But more often than not, you are held in detention because since 9-11, most of our immigration uh, uh, bureaucracy would prefer to err on the side of caution and hold people in detention than to allow somebody to be released into society that might cause us harm. A third development that has affected U.S. refugee policy since the end of the Cold War is the growing number of people who do not meet the strict definition of refugee, according to our law. As we discussed earlier, refugee has a very precise legal meaning. You must prove persecution because of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. But today's refugees and asylum seekers do not always fall very neatly into those five categories. And those people that do not fall into those five categories present us with all sorts of moral challenges. So here are four four issues that are particularly challenging to policymakers today. Can child soldiers receive refugee status? According to our law, according to international law, only civilians can be refugees. But over the past two decades, some 300,000 children under the age of 18 have been conscripted against their will by one army or another to work as fighters, as cooks, as servants, as sexual slaves. Prior to 9-11, a few hundred of these child soldiers succeeded in securing asylum in the United States, and a few of them went on to write successful memoirs that called international attention to the plight of child soldiers. However, they are the exceptions. Since 9-11, most child soldiers have been denied entrance to the United States because anti-terrorist legislation passed in the wake of 9-11 bars the entrance of those who have offered material support to a known terrorist organization. And many of the armies that conscript them against their will are on the terrorist watch list. 
Here's challenge number two for policymakers. Is there a better way to assist victims of trafficking? Some 800,000 people are trafficked uh, each year for labor or for sex. Even our own little town of Ithaca, New York, has seen victims of trafficking. In order to receive protection from the United States under the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, one must be willing to assist law enforcement, which many are not willing to do because it would place their families and villages at risk of retaliation from international trafficking syndicates. Thus, victims are faced with two equally difficult options. In order to receive protection from the United States, you have to be willing to testify against your abusers. But in order to guarantee the safety of your families and villages, you must refrain from doing so. Is there a better way to assist victims of trafficking? That's a question that refugee advocates ask our policymakers all the time. Challenge number three. What do you do with children who arrive unaccompanied in the United States? Thousands of children arrive in the United States by themselves each year to escape domestic abuse, gang violence, poverty, trafficking. The border crisis of 2014, which you'll recall from a few years back, uh, called attention to the growing number of unaccompanied children who were fleeing the criminal violence in Central America. But fleeing criminal violence in itself is not a legal ground for asylum. It doesn't, um, it doesn't guarantee that you will receive asylum. Those who do not have family here in the United States are quietly returned to their countries of origin. But refugee advocates ask, is it moral to return children to dangerous conditions if their safety cannot be guaranteed? Might there be another option? And then finally, a fourth challenge that confronts our policymakers today. Are victims of environmental disaster entitled to some type of protection? According to the United Nations and the International Organization for Migration, climate change-related migration could reach as high as 200 million by the year 2050. That's not too far into the future. Um, Fleeing natural disaster in itself is not grounds for receiving asylum or refugee status. There is another option for victims of of climate change. The 1990 Immigration Act, for example, um, created a status known as TPS, Temporary Protected Status. If you were already living in the, uh, if you were already in the United States, say as a tourist or as a student, and war breaks out in your country, or there's some kind of environmental disaster that prevents you from returning home safely, you might be eligible for TPS, for temporary protected status. And the recipients of temporary protected status are authorized to remain and work here until the State Department ascertains that conditions in your country have improved sufficiently in order to guarantee a safe return. And at present, nationals from 12 different countries are potentially eligible for temporary protected status. However, these individuals occupy a liminal space in our society. They are allowed to live and work here temporarily, but they're denied the chance to adjust their status to permanent resident or citizen, except in a few um, uh, exceptions, you know, a few circumstances. So there are Uh, Thousands of Salvadorans and Nicaraguans and Hondurans who have held temporary status for over a decade, 
without the chance of normalizing their status. They have raised their families here. They have paid payroll taxes. They have invested in their host societies. Um, but they don't have a chance to, um, to become full members of American society. And our legislators, at some point or another, will have to decide whether long-term residents under TPS should be afforded the opportunity to become full citizens. And as you can imagine, this proposition is sure to elicit a very heated debate in the halls of, of Congress. So these are just four of the many challenges that our policymakers are confronting at this very moment. The UNHCR, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, this past year announced that at present, at this moment, right now, there are some 60 million refugees and displaced persons worldwide. That's 60 million, up from 14 million at the end of the 1990s. The U.S. is among the 10 countries that carry out resettlement programs with the United Nations. However, let me end with this sobering note. As generous as our policy is and has been, and I and my family are beneficiaries of that generosity when we immigrated from Cuba, the number of refugees and asylees that the United States admits each year are just a drop in the bucket. Fewer than 1% of refugees worldwide are ever resettled to third countries like the United States. It's the countries that border political, uh, it's the countries that border areas of political conflict that have always borne the real burden of accommodating refugees. Refugee camps like Zatari in Jordan, which you see here on the screen, have become the size of cities with the exception that the residents, the people who live there, do not have the chance to practice their professions, to run businesses, to own property, to move about freely, to choose where they're going to live. Educational opportunities are largely absent. The things that we take for granted in our day-to-day lives here um, are denied people who live in refugee camps. And around the world, there are refugees who have lived in these circumstances for over a decade. They have raised their families in these conditions. It's all their children know. But most of us, geographically removed from places like Zatari and suffering from what Senator Alan Simpson once called compassion fatigue, were generally ignorant of their plight. So thank you for your attention. Let's, uh, I'm willing to... uh, uh, I'm eager to hear your questions. So do you have any questions about any of the material I've covered thus far or anything else that's on your mind? No? Tess, thank you. The people, the picture of the people walking through the water, what was that from? Yeah, uh, uh, that was in, uh, the, uh, in, in, I forget which country in Central Africa, but it was uh, one, of the, one of the areas that was hard hit by, a, um, uh, by flooding. Um, uh, because, you know, I, there are so many people around the world who, um, who are affected by typhoons, by hurricanes, by flooding, by earthquakes, by mudslides, and they're becoming increasingly common, as you know. And so, um, uh, um, as we talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago, many of, of the individuals who we consider to be uh, political refugees today 
Um, in, in some ways, they are also environmental refugees because when there is a natural disaster like an earthquake or a typhoon or a hurricane, it disrupts livelihoods. And people are then forced to cross, uh, either move internally within their country or cross international borders. And when they move, uh, they put pressures on the population where they have settled. And that leads, oftentimes leads to uh, sectarian violence, uh, to political conflict. And then before you know it, you have a war or some, uh, some other type of civil unrest. So many in- individuals today that we call uh, political refugees um, moved in the first place because of environmental dislocation. So it's, it, it's becoming increasingly hard to tease out the environmental refugees from the political refugees. Thank you, Tess. Any other questions? Stephen. Uh, I wanted to ask about, uh, especially the Syrian crisis, mm-hmm. so I wanted to know, what is uh, the, uh, the, ref- uh, the refugee law, for example, like Georgia, and how has it changed? Or like the refugee start like, laws for the countries around Syria, and how have they changed like, in yeah. Syria? Thank you. Thank you for your question. As Stephen was asking about... Um, what kind of refugee system is in place in many of the countries that have absorbed Syrian refugees um, and other refugees. Um, uh, In in the case of of many countries that are are host societies for refugees, many of them are not signatories to the UN Convention on Refugees or the 1967 Protocol. So many of... It's one of the... It's it's somewhat um, um, startling. You know, here are these countries that never signed this UN Convention on Refugees uh, where they committed themselves to accept refugees. They've never signed those conventions and yet they have been forced because of circumstance to accommodate a number of refugees. Um, uh, and, and Jordan, in, in Lebanon right now, one quarter of the population of Lebanon are Syrian refugees. Jordan has also uh, accommodated tens of thousands of Syrian refugees, and they've done so working with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees to create these camps. But they're hoping that the camps will not be permanent, that eventually things will stabilize in Syria so that people can return home. Because it is the goal of the UNHCR and the International Organization for Migration and, and most, you know, most of the international community that refugees not be permanent residents you know, uh, in, in, in a society. The goal is to house them temporarily until conditions stabilize and they can return home. And when you look over the past 60 years, there have been a number of, of cases where refugees have been able to return home. So, for example, in the case of Guatemala, after the 1996 peace accords, uh, many Guatemalans who had settled in refugee camps in southern Mexico were able to return home and rebuild their lives in, in their old villages. Um, um, and, and so that's the goal of the UNHCR. Thank you, Stephen. Okay, thank you, Meredith. Can you talk a little bit about how um, there's programs set up for the Cuban refugees to help them come acclimate to American society? Are there uh, programs set up for like, Syrian refugees and other refugees to help them? That's a good question. The question was, is there anything comparable to the Cuban refugee program uh, for the Syrian refugees? Um, the Cuban refugee program was unique in American immigration history. There has never been a program as generous as the one that was created to help the Cubans retool for life in the U.S. Uh, It wasn't just the amount of money 
um, that was invested in the community. It was just um, the the, num- the programs, how far reaching there were. There were, you know, um, uh, the federal government uh, helped create programs at the University of Miami, for example, to help uh, Cuban doctors and lawyers and engineers um, s- uh, learn English and pass the certification exams that would allow them to practice their professions in the United States because they noticed that many of the Cubans who were arriving during the 1960s were the highly skilled of their societies. They were professionals. They had skills that were important to the U.S. economy, but they couldn't practice so- those professions in the U.S. because they didn't speak English or they, they needed to pass the certification exams that would allow them to practice those professions. And so the Cuban Refugee Program worked with local colleges uh, in South Florida um, so that the uh, Cuban doctors and dentists and lawyers could take these courses and retool for life in the United States. Um, but the Cuban Refugee Program also um, helped um, individuals uh, find, uh, established new careers. So, uh, so for example, they, uh, the gov- federal government noticed that there were many women who were arriving without their spouses uh, in the United States because their spouses were imprisoned in Cuba. And these women had never worked in the labor force before. And so the Cuban Refugee Program helped train these women to work as secretaries, to work um, as teachers or teacher aides in the Dade County public school system. The Cuban Refugee Program also um, distributed um, uh, monthly relief checks to help pay the rent and surplus food like cheese and meat um, so so that families wouldn't go hungry until they became financially established in the United States. States. That's atypical. We have never seen a program like the Cuban refugee program since in American society. Most refugees today, um, when Syrian refugees come to the United States today, they are uh, they qualify for the same assistance that other refugees receive, which is that they are entitled to eight months of intensive assistance from the federal government. And so the federal government works with a number of relief agencies across the United States, like Catholic uh, charities, like the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, HIAS, the Lutheran Relief Services. And these agencies help place refugees around the country. And, uh, and at the local level, communities help refugees become established but that assistance only lasts for about eight months. After that, um, the goal is that you will have found employment and that you will be on the way to be becoming fully integrated into U.S. society. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, thank you, Elle. Um, you mentioned how the quota has never been like filled before, and now that like the Obama administration is increasing it to 100,000, do you think it will still go like, unfilled? Thank you. Thank you for the question. The question for those of you um, over here, if, in case you didn't hear, Elle was asking uh, if I thought that the quota, you know, once the quota is increased to 100,000 to accommodate more Syrian refugees, whether I think that quota will be filled. I don't think it will. I mean, if, if past uh, history is any indication, um, and given how long it takes to vet a refugee for security reasons to come to the United States, it's highly doubtful that we will uh, reach that 100,000 quota. Thank you. Kristen. Do you think so that we'll exceed like the usual 70,000? Yes, I think, yes, uh, that's a good question. Um, Kristen asked whether we will exceed the 70 to 80,000. Yes, I think we will. I think we'll probably, um, if I had to guess, I think it'll be somewhere between 85 and, and 90,000 people who will be brought in. But, but remember, just bear in mind that, that 100,000 are not all Syrian refugees. I mean, Syrians are competing with refugees from other parts of the world. 
So the, the, the quota has been expanded, presumably to accommodate more Syrian refugees, but it's not guaranteed that all those spaces will go to Syrian refugees, right? Okay, thank you. Louis. So um, I know that refugees have a legal status in the country, so how do things like, like deportations work? So I know we have the expedited process for certain people at ports of entry, right? but um, once they're accepted as refugees, yeah. Well, they can if they commit a crime in the United States or if they are discovered to have lied about their past in some way, they can be deported um, if they have not become permanent residents. I mean, once they become permanent residents and well, even in some cases, there have been cases of individuals who became citizens and were stripped of their citizenship and deported. So, for example, we know of cases over the past 10 years of Rwandan refugees who were later discovered to have lied about their participation in the genocide. And once that information came to light, these individuals who had normalized their status and become citizens were stripped of their citizenship and then put in removal proceedings, deported, um, to, face, um, to face the consequences back, back in, in their homeland. Thank you. Thank you, Louis. I mean, sorry, Leighton. There's been lots of talk that the screening process for refugees isn't strict enough and that it would call a lot of terrorists through, and I was wondering if you could say something. Okay, the question is um, if I could comment on the screening process for refugees and whether... um, whether it will allow um, would-be terrorists to enter the United States. Now, no screening process is 100% fail-proof. I mean, there's just no way to guarantee um, safety. There's just no way. Um, however, I think it's, it's less likely that a would-be a terrorist will enter through the refugee track. Um, you know, if you've been reading the news... Um, Many uh, individuals who are opposed to um, Syrian, uh, to bringing in more Syrian refugees, always highlight the example of the Zarnaev brothers. But the Zarnaev brothers were not refugees. They came with their families. They came as children with their parents, as tourists to the United States. And once they were on U.S. soil, they asked for asylum, and they were vetted, and they established roots here in the U.S. Um, but there was, no, there was no way to predict that these young men who immigrated as children would become radicalized on American soil and cause us harm. But they did not come in as refugees. They did not com- come in during the, uh, through the refugee track. I think it's less likely for a would-be terrorist to enter through the refugee track than, say, through the tourist track. Right? Thank you for the question. Any other questions? Okay, thank you. Does the United States have any long-term plans in the future for um, large influxes of refugees from, for say, like natural disasters or maybe um, even like disasters in our neighboring bordering countries to take in large numbers of refugees? That's an excellent question. Matt asked uh, whether the U.S., um, whether there are any policy debates underway about um, um, expanding a more humanitarian response to victims of, of climate change, right, uh, climate migration. At present, not, not that I know of. I, I know that many of our think tanks, many of our um, educational institutions are engaged in these conversations. Um, but as we've discussed, the word refugee has a very precise legal meaning. And in order to receive refugee status, we would need to reconsider 
perhaps expand our definition of refugee in order to accommodate people who, um, who are victims of climate change. Now, as I mentioned earlier, um, sometimes it's really hard to tease out the climate refugee from the political refugee. So if a, a victim of some kind of climate disaster can prove persecution based on one of these other five categories, then yes, that individual might be able to receive refugee status in the United States. But based solely on climate change or, or climate migration, no, it's highly doubtful. Uh, at least at present, there isn't any, any move uh, on Congress to expand the definition of refugee that would take into account victims of climate change. Right. Great. These are all great questions. Thank you. Um, any other questions that you might have? Okay, well, then I'll wish you a wonderful afternoon. Let me pass out uh, the, uh, the final prompt, and, uh, and I'll wish you all a great afternoon. Thank you so much for your attention, and thanks for the excellent questions. Thanks. Okay. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. If you're interested in hearing more history, check out Season 2 of the Presidential Recordings podcast. The second season focuses on taped conversations between President Richard Nixon on topics ranging from the Watergate scandal to his nominees for the Supreme Court. The Presidential Recordings Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>